Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, some years ago, it was Mother's Day, and we were getting ready to come to church, and I hadn't received anything yet because my kids were really little. And so I just kind of nudged my husband and say, hey, what are we doing today? And he's like, well, you know, I thought we'd go out to lunch after church or something. And I said, well, did you make a reservation? He goes, no. I'm like, so I guess we're not going out to lunch because good luck going to a restaurant today. And then he starts feeling really bad. He's like, well, do you just not want to go to church? And I said, no, that's the one place that's going to celebrate me. <laughs> so we get to church that day, and I tell my friend what happened. And, or actually, I didn't tell her what happened. I asked her what she was doing, um, and I told her our conversation. And she said, wait, 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 wait. I just had the exact same conversation with my husband. So whoever you are in that scenario, there's a place for you here. If you are the husband, you're not alone. If you are a mother or just a woman today, we celebrate you and we honor you. <laughs> I, have to, I have to follow that up by saying that my husband is a changed man and he is very good at intentionally celebrating today. <laughs> All right. Um, our passage today is John chapter 4. It's a passage that many of you are familiar with. I do want to read through the story of uh, this woman at the well. Um, it's a little lengthy, but let's get into it, and then we'll get into it. So, John chapter 4, starting in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a, sound of, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so, I, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skipping down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, <clears throat> I was an English major in college, and there are generally two kind of schools of thoughts when it comes to studying English. One is literature. You read all the great novels and authors and poetry, which I love, but the other is language, and I always gravitated towards language. I just, I love words. I love the meaning of them. I love, like, even just the sound and the look of them and, like, linguistics and breaking them out down into the diagrams and the root word and what happens when you change this part of word and just the power that words hold. And then you combine two words together and then it gets really exciting. I've always just loved words and language. There's a literary term called apophysis, not to be confused with the scientific term apophysis. I have no idea what apophysis means. I just know that's the science one. So apophysis is the, the act of describing something by what it is not, okay? Describing something by what it is not. It's used like in courts a lot when people will draw attention to what they're not guilty of rather than addressing the charge. Um, it's used, um, if you want like an artistic example of this, it's kind of like negative space. Instead of drawing out an object, it's like when you shade the background except for that object, okay? So it's describing something by what it is not. A lot of times I feel like we kind of default to this apophatic way of thinking and identifying ourselves. We are more sure at times of what we are not than of what we are. Um, I grew up an immigrant. I moved to this country when I was two. Um, so this is, this is my country, this is my memories, this is what I know, but I was very aware growing up that I was not white. I was very aware uh, that my parents did not speak good English or we didn't live in those neighborhoods that my classmates did and my parents didn't have the jobs that their parents did and nothing will make you feel more like an immigrant than lunchtime at school. I was very aware that I did not have a ham and cheese sandwich, chips, and a juice. I <laughs> opened my lunchbox, and it was rice and marinated dried squid and seaweed, which is delicious. <laughs> and I know that Korean food is very trendy today, but 30 years ago, it wasn't. I was very, very aware of what I was not. And clearly, I'm all grown up now. Life has changed so much. But 
I still fall into this way of thinking, I'm very aware of what I'm not. I'm very aware that I'm not a homeowner. That's a big one these days. I'm very aware that I'm not the ideal weight. I fight with that one every day. <laughs> no matter what our upbringing or our backgrounds, we're so aware of the things that we're not. So like our girl in this story, I feel like a lot of us have learned this story defining this woman by what she's not. We know that she's not married. We know that she's not a member of acceptable society. And we know that she's not supposed to be talking to Jesus. And I wanna take some time to kind of break down the context here because it's important. So centuries before this, the Assyrians invaded Israel and then the Babylonians, and we know this because of the prophets that we have. And when these countries invaded Israel, they took all the people of prominence from Israel and they, they took them captive. And so the people who were left, they were, they were not people of prominence to begin with. But then the foreign countries, what they did was they intermarried with the leftover Israels and they kind of bred them out as a way of further dissipating the nation of Israel. So years and years later, when the native Israels come back to their native land, they don't find this pure remnant of Jews that were saved and preserved. They found this half-breed country in both race and religion. That's what Samaria was. And you know, a lot of times it's more insulting when something pretends to be the real thing, right, instead of something completely different. And that's why Jewish disdain for Samaria was so deep. They were like wannabe self-called Jews, but they weren't like really Jews. They were so defiled in the eyes of Jewish people. Jewish disdain for Samaria was so deep that even geographically, okay, so geographically the nation of Israel, you have Galilee up here, this is where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up in Capernaum. And then you have Judea down here, which is where Jerusalem is, and Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. You have Samaria, smack dab in the middle. And then you have the Jordan River that goes alongside it. So Jewish disdain for Samaria was so deep that when Jews traveled from Judea to Galilee, or vice versa, the preferred route was not going straight through Samaria. They just didn't even want to associate with these people, touch these people, defile themselves by being with these people. So the preferred route was to cross the Jordan River, go up or down, whichever way they're traveling, and then cross the river again to get to where they were going. This journey took about three days. And if they were to go straight through Samaria, which sometimes they did for time's sake, that journey took about a day. Okay, but I just wanted to paint this picture of how deeply Jewish people hated Samaritans. Let me just give you one more example. There was actually a law that stated the daughters of Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness. Now, just a Jewish woman, when it's her time of menstruation in the months, she is considered unclean. She's not allowed to touch her children. She's not allowed to touch her husband. She's not allowed to go into society. She's not allowed to cook. She has her own set of utensils for when she cooks. And when that time is over, she has to go through a purification process to re-enter society again. This is why there was no place for women at the temple or the synagogues and for fear that one of them might start their cycle and defile the whole place, okay? That was custom for Jewish women. And there was this law that said that Samaritans are menstruants 
from the cradle, you guys. And therefore, by association, any Samaritan man or any, any person who associated with a Samaritan woman was also defiled and unclean. So not only was she unclean just by being a Samaritan and a woman, she was an outcast from her own society. We know this because in verse 6, she's coming to draw water at the sixth hour. The sixth hour was about noon. Noon is the hottest day, the hottest time of the day, all right? Drawing water is hard work, okay? Functionally, it's just hard work. Also, you need water, right, to, to bathe, to wash, to cook with. You need water early in the day. So the custom was that, you know, all the women from the town came to the well to draw water before it got hot, early on in the day. This was the first chore that they did, not just for function, but also it was a communal thing, right? This was like the town square. This is where all the women met before their day started and like, here's that wine recipe that I told you about. You'll never guess what my kid did the other day. You know, this was like the village Starbucks where everyone caught up, everyone knew each other. And so this woman is coming in the heat of the day hours later because she's unwanted and she knows it now <clears throat> let's just address the big elephant in the room we all know that she had five husbands and the man that she was with now was not her husband let's just pause there i know that the first thing that comes to your mind is that she's an adulteress and that's not your fault that's what you've been taught but remember samaritans were the sect of judaism right and there was a lot of overlap and so in my study, I found that there were actually not that many differences in marriage laws from Jews and Samaritans. Now, we know that women could not file for divorce. Only a man could do that. And adultery definitely was grounds for divorce. But not just grounds for divorce. Adultery was grounds for her murder. Like her husband could have her killed if she was an adulteress, and he would be considered honorable for doing that to his wife. So the fact that she was married five times, it's very unlikely that she would have survived five marriages being an adulteress. And then so I was like, well, maybe she was barren. Maybe that's why, you know, her husband's dumped her or whatever. Well, the law doesn't allow barrenness to be grounds for divorce. It does provide for you to be able to marry a second wife, to have children. We see that with Hannah, right? There was a second wife there because Hannah was barren. So the fact that um, she was married five times, you know, I mean, just think about if, if there was any gross wrongdoing on her part, it's very unlikely that even a fourth or fifth man would want to marry her. So we know that it's very unusual, but it's also, it doesn't imply really any gross wrongdoing on her part. Most likely, the reason that this, married, that this woman was married and remarried five times is she was widowed. That's the most likely explanation. Now, I'm not sure, we're not sure, we don't have the whole story here. I'm not saying that she was innocent of anything that you're thinking. I'm just saying there's a story there. That's the first thing that I want you guys to think about today is that there's a story there. Now, English major, right? So I read a lot of books, and my favorite kinds of books to read are memoirs. Most memoirs are really sad or have like a big chunk of something that's really, really sad, and that's 
largely in part because human suffering is kind of our default state because we live in a broken world. And I know that's kind of news to some of us, right? We've kind of trained ourselves to think that, and you know, social media doesn't help, but we've kind of trained ourselves to think that we're supposed to have it all and we're supposed to be happy. And when we, we're not happy, like we think that's wrong and we try to get back to the state of happiness. Can I tell you something right now? That's a lie. If you're suffering, if you're like going through some stuff today, you are the norm, not the exception. This is life in a fallen world. But I like to read these stories and um, there's so much pain that people have suffered. And um, you know that our family is affected by disabilities and so I follow a lot of these parents of uh, children with disabilities and just things like what it does to their marriage or having to apply for guardianship when the child turns 18 or putting your child in a residential program and they always make me cry, you know? And I'll share these stories with my husband. I'm like, guess what I read today? And he always gets mad. He's like, why you gotta tell me these things? You know? And I get it, because we don't like feeling sad. But I like reading these hard things because I need to know people's stories. Without that, I have no, I have no capacity for compassion and understanding. There's always more to people than, than what you see on the outside. To bring in Pastor Gary's favorite doctor, Dr. Phil. <laughs> I was watching this episode of Dr. Phil years and years ago. And uh, it was this middle-aged woman who was just off the hinges. I mean, like partying every night, getting drunk, getting drunk in public. I mean. Her daughter had to go pick her up, you know, just, and her daughter brought her on this show to confront her and be like, mom, like, get your act together. Like, you were such a good mom, and what are you doing? You're embarrassing me. And uh, she was just so unapologetic, you know. I did that for 20 years. I was a PTA mom. I baked cookies for 20 years. It's my turn now. You know, and they bring in all these people who are important to her life, trying to talk some sense into her. And her daughter is just pleading with her mom, I just want my mom back. And mom's, I did that for 20 years, it's my turn now. So Dr. Phil, you know, lets them have their peace. And at the end of the program, he says to his mom, he says, look, I just wanna say sorry. I'm sorry that no one heard you for 20 years. You know what it did, it disarmed her and she just starts crying. There's more to her story. When she was that good PTA baking cookies mom, everyone saw her performance, but no one cared to see her, right? That's what he was getting at. And now that she's middle-aged and acting out from all these things because she was never happy to begin with, everyone saw her behaviors, but no one cared to stop and ask, hey, what's your story? What's going on? We need to learn to listen to people's stories. So by the time we get to our girl in this, in this passage, everyone else has formulated an opinion of who she is and who she is not. But no one had cared enough to get to know her. This is the scene into which Jesus enters. And I love that Jesus approaches her with this very human need. He was weary and he was thirsty and he seeks her. 
and they begin to have this conversation about physical water, and they move to a conversation about spiritual things, and it's almost impossible not to see that he matched in his person what she felt in her spirit. He was tired and thirsty in his body. She was tired and thirsty in her spirit. When he comes to her, knowing the condition of her soul, what is he saying? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Can you hear the weariness in her voice? Give me this water so I don't have to come here anymore. Because every time I come here, it's a reminder of what I'm not. Every day I come here is a reminder of what they call me. Every day I come here is a reminder of all the things that I will never be. And she's ready to receive. She's ready for that drink. She's ready for that living water. And Jesus is almost ready to introduce her to the Messiah. Jesus addresses the issue of her husband's, which we talked about. And just notice, Jesus never calls her an adulteress. He never tells her to repent and go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't do that. Look at his language. He affirms her. He says, you're right. You're right in saying you have no husband. You're right. I think we can learn a lot just from this language here. Even if there is a sin aspect going on that we largely assume, even when we deal with sin, in our language, can we affirm the sinner I think that Jesus is bringing up this point as a means of telling her, I know your story. Even, you know, we get this wrong a lot, but I like to think as Jesus is preparing to introduce the Messiah to her, he's laying the groundwork and he's letting her know that the Messiah is someone who knows everything about her and still receives her. They get into this Again, some theological discussions. She says, we worship on this mountain. So again, remember, the Jews won't let Samaritans worship in Jerusalem where the temple is. So they set up their own mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. That's what they're talking about here. So she goes, we're supposed to worship here. And you say that you're supposed to worship here. So what's going on? And Jesus says, neither. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. But I want you to notice here, okay, she's just confused, this woman, even religiously. Her whole identity is just this confusion about who she is, about who others are calling her. Even religiously, she's, I think she's earnestly trying to seek this thing called faith and, and, and the Messiah. She knows the notion of who the Messiah is, and she's even confused in that because there are differing voices there. But she knows that whatever differences there are, and I want, I want to point this out too, she knows that whatever differences there are, that the Messiah, when he comes, who is he to her? The one who will tell us all things. I love that. The Messiah to this woman who was so confused and called so many different things is the one who will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. The disciples come back and they give some major side eye, but they keep their mouths shut. <laughs> she leaves. She goes back to the town people, and I love her testimony. What's her testimony? Come, 
see the man who told me all that I ever did. In other words, come see the man who knows my story. What happened? They come. Now, look, some of them came because they wanted to know everything that she had ever done. You know what I mean? Some of them came because they wanted that front row seat to the Real Housewives of Samaria. Whatever reason it was, they came. And what happens when they come? Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Come see a man who's told me all that I have ever did. Girl, your testimony is powerful. Did she try to preach through the Old Testament and the prophets? Did she try to make a theological case for who the Messiah was? She just gave her testimony. She said, this man knows everything I've ever done. Come and see him. All right, now don't miss this. Remember how I talked to you about um, the, the, the voyage, the, the preferred route to go from these two regions and how the preferred route was to kind of circumvent Samaria altogether? Go back to verse 4 with me. It's just one verse, and I love that. This is just one verse. And he had to pass through <laughs> Samaria. So first of all, we know there was an alternate route. Okay? It took longer, but there was an alternate route. So he didn't have to pass through Samaria. And then we're like, okay, well, maybe Jesus didn't have the time. Maybe he had to get to where he was going quickly. But how long did he stay in Samaria? Don't miss it. Two more days. So the day that he spent traveling through Samaria and the two days that he stayed there, he had the three days of travel. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria by any logistical means. He had to pass through Samaria because there was a divine appointment there that he just could not miss. Jesus had to go through Samaria to bring salvation to this people. This is Jesus' first public ministry where he reveals himself as Christ to the crowds and he does it to an outcast woman and an outcast nation. This is Jesus. <laughs> I hope by now you've begun to think about this woman a little bit differently than you had before. And as great as that is for her, this story is ultimately not about her. This is ultimately a story of salvation. This woman was considered defiled in every way. And by association, anyone who comes into contact with her is also defiled. But instead of making him unclean, by association of Jesus, this woman becomes clean and undefiled, she becomes new. Now, let's go back to her testimony. Anyone who says, come and see a man who has told me all that ever, I ever did, these are not the words of someone who's still living in that life. Yeah, I got things in my past. You have things in your past. I've done things 10 years ago that make me cringe when I think about it today. I did things last year that I'm not proud of. I had thoughts yesterday that I am not proud of. But when I am walking in the spirit and the devil tries to remind me of my worst moments, I know that although I am a work in progress and although I know I will be living out and working out this thing called sanctification for the rest of my life, I walk from glory to glory, out of darkness, 
into his marvelous light, but by the grace of God. So when the devil tries to throw that in my face, I say, go ahead. Go ahead and tell me all that I have ever done because I am redeemed and I am not that person anymore. So this woman, for her to go and open that invitation, open that door and say, come and listen to everything I have ever done. These are the words of a woman who has been redeemed. No one cared to know about her story before. And there was one who did, and his name was Jesus. And that's what drew her to him. But once Jesus enters her life, he gives her a new story. Psalm 40 says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He gave her a new song. He gave her a new story. And he made her first evangelist in the history of the church. Many came to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I want to call her Evangeline now. I mean, she deserves more, don't you think? So what is it? What is it that we should be restored and redeemed to? Harken back with me to the first mother we had, the first woman. Harken back to me with Genesis 1. When God is creating the world and he makes all the living things, in some translations it says he created them in their own image. The great sea creatures and every winged bird in their image. He created livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth in their image. And then we get to verse 26 and it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman were uniquely created in God's image. And we know what happens when God tells Adam and Eve, you know, you have stewardship over this world, take care of it, you can eat from everything except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil, because if you eat from that tree, you will die. And we get to chapter 3 when sin enters the world. And before you go beating on Adam and Eve, if it wasn't them, it would have been you. Sin enters the world. And look at what the serpent, look at how the serpent tempts them. Did God really say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit in the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was light to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and ate it and also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open. The serpent tempted Eve, verse 5, by making her want to be like God. Two chapters earlier, when they were created, they were created in his image and likeness. Erwin McManus preached a message on this years ago, and I'll never forget it. He said, Eve's sin was not wanting to be like God. Her sin was forgetting that she was already like God. By the way, Adam was there. Did you catch that? There's a story there, too. I'm not going to get into it today. But I just wonder... What a different story it would be if when the serpent tempted Eve by wanting to be like God, he reminded her, Eve, you're already like God. How different would our lives be 
if we reminded each other of the glory and the image of God within us. See, ultimately, it's not about us. I need to know your story, yes. But not just because of you, but I need to know your story because God has given part of himself uniquely to you. And when I know your story, I know God more. And that's why we need each other. And that's why we need this community. And I wonder how much richer our lives will be if we did that for one another, if we drew that out of one another. And if we trusted for ourselves that God has given part of himself uniquely to me. And I know the story of the woman at the well is, it's not the conventional Mother's Day text. But man, as women, as wives, as mothers, how often do we feel like we're defined by the things we're not? I mean, I feel like for a good decade after becoming a mom, like my brain was just a fog and I didn't recognize myself in pictures and I don't know what normal felt like because motherhood is just a constant pivot. There are days where it just feels like life happens at 150 miles an hour. And there are days where the whole day goes by and you feel like you've accomplished absolutely nothing. And yes, it's, it's beautiful and it's absolutely worth it and you love these kids more than you ever thought you could. But it's hard between being a short order cook and a nurse and a house cleaner and managing the household and a family secretary and chauffeur and just all these different hats that we have to wear. How often are we seen for who we are? It's, there's such a disconnect, even today, of who, who, I, who I used to be and who I am and who I want to be. You know, even in our workplaces, we don't really value mothers. We kind of just want them to go away until their kids are grown and then come back. And how different it would be, how powerful would it be if you just came alongside a mother and said, hey, what's your story? How are you? Not the kids, not the husband, not the house, how are you? How can I love you today? Just ask. What difference would it make if when we feel weak and discouraged and overwhelmed as mothers, you will come alongside them and remind them of who they are and call out the things and the ways that they are like God. When you sit with your child, teaching them over and over and over again, something they should already know, you are like God who is patient with us and teaches us over and over and over the things that we should already know. When you're frustrated because your career is on hold and you want to do all these other things, but you're present with your child instead, you are like God. Who else, who better than the creator of this universe, manager of all things, has better things to do, yet he chooses to be present with you and me and tend to our needs. Mother, you are like God, and don't you ever forget it. Maybe you're not the conventional mom. Maybe like Evangeline, society has put its own labels on you. And like our pastor acknowledged, Mother's Day is a hard, hard day for a lot of people because we all carry different stories. 
Never assume that someone is childless by choice. Never assume that someone has five kids because they planned it. Some mothers have buried babies and they will carry around that gaping hole for the rest of their lives and you would never know it by looking at them. Some of us have lost mothers and you are carrying around this grief that no human being on earth will ever love you as much as she did. Would you draw near to the one who knows all things and the only one who can give you a new song? And would you let him comfort you if that's you? Would you cling to the testimony that he has given you and trust that he has given you part of his story just to you. And I pray that we all as a body would take the time to listen, to ask, to seek each other's stories and to remind ourselves, to remind one another of the image of God that we carry. And lastly, whether you're a mom or not, men, we wanna love on you too. I believe that some of you are here today because Jesus had to meet with you. Maybe you're here today because it's Mother's Day and you wanted to just please your mother, so you came to church. Maybe you're here today because you wanted to spite your mother, so you came to church. Whatever your situation is, maybe you are tired and thirsty like this woman was. But for whatever reason you are here today, I believe that you are here because Jesus had to meet with you. Wasn't that a blessing? Amen. What is your story? Uh, one of the most terrifying things I could ever imagine is if uh, somehow my life story could be played up on these screens. Every thought I've had, every action I've done, everything I've done, we'd have to ask the kids to leave and by the time it was over, you all would be so appalled, there would be no one who would ever come back to this church. And the same is true for most of you. And yet Jesus Christ, none of you knows everything about me. And yet Jesus Christ knows everything about me. He has seen that movie and he knows the parts that haven't even happened yet. And he still says to me, you're mine. I want you. I love you. It is covered. I say this a lot. Every other religion that I'm aware of is a process by which you earn your way into salvation. And Christianity is the, is the faith that says there is no way you could ever earn your salvation. And yet it's given to you anyway. 
Thank you, Sharon, for that word. And thank you for that reminder. May we be a body here at ALCF that sees each other's stories. We're gonna finish now with a song of response. This is a time for us to continue worshiping God. It is a time for us to, to do business with God. If you have felt the Holy Spirit speaking to you in any way in these moments, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's no better moment than right now to make that decision to say, I trust that you know everything there is to know about me and you still want me. And I'm here to tell you he does. If that's you, myself, Sharon, any one of our other ministry leaders would love to speak to you after the service. Let's worship, and I'll be back to close this out. And I will trust where you lead. Yes, I will trust when I can't see. Yes, I will trust from my heart. You are good. You always are. Morning by morning, great is your faithfulness. Too. I will trust and I will trust where you lead. And I will trust when I can't see. Sound great, church. Morning. I will trust. And I will trust. With all my heart, Lord. You are good. You always are. Morning by morning. Great is your faithfulness to me. Morning by morning. Thank you, Father. Morning by morning. Morning by morning. Great is your faithfulness to me. And I will trust. Receive the benediction. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you, Lord. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.